Thank you for joining us for the Restoration Church Podcast. Today's message is the first in a series called Prayer, and is entitled Image Impacts Intimacy. We hope you enjoy. Thank you guys so much for being here. We are going to jump in together uh, and continue a study that we started a few weeks ago. As we, as we just try to understand a little bit more of a passage of Scripture that's really important. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you guys may have heard, it, heard of it before. Uh, we're going to dig in and <clears throat> understand it a little bit more deeply today. I do want to start out with a little bit of an assessment. So what we're going to do is I'm going to throw some pictures up here in just a second. And uh, when, once these pictures come up, I just want you in your head, not out loud, so that we don't influence the decisions of other people. And uh, you're going to answer the question in your head is, how enjoyable do you think it would be to talk to one of these people? So we're going to have two different sets of pictures that come up. And uh, just in your head, maybe you want to write it down, you can. You can do like right, left. Uh, this isn't a scientific experiment, uh, obviously. But we're going to dig in together and look at some pictures. So let's throw the first set up there, Diane, if you don't mind. Everybody say hello to my lovely assistant, Diane, in the back. Hello, Diane. There we go. Thank you. All right. So uh, here's our assessment we're going to do. Just in your mind, left or right, uh, which one do you think would be more enjoyable to talk to? Maybe, maybe make a mental note, write something down, those kind of things. Can everybody see? I'm not included in this. I know you want to talk to me. So we'll go to the next set. Kind of get in your head a little bit. Which one do you think you'd be more enjoyable to have a conversation with? Uh, all right, go to the next one. That's my Aunt Gerthy on the right there. Not really. I do have an Aunt Gerthy, or I, I did have an Aunt Gerthy. Um, so here's the next one. Good deal. And I think we have one more, if I'm not mistaken. This may be the last one. Is that the last one? That's the last one. All right, so got it in your head a little bit of which one of the binary sets as you choose between left and right, A or B, uh, which one do you think you would enjoy talking to uh, more than the other? So this, this little assessment is an example of what some other people have experienced as well. Uh, in an assessment that was done in the psychology study, that I read about in a book called um, uh, Referencing How the Human Brain Works. And uh, in this study, they discovered that, that it's 147% more, percent more likely that you would choose a person that is smiling to want to have a conversation with and talk with than someone who's not. So no matter how attractive someone is, no matter what their ethnicity is, no matter uh, whether they're in your socioeconomic status, whatever it is, smiling actually creates a much more likelihood of you wanting to have a conversation with them than, uh, than if they're not smiling. So what we learn in that is even looking at these pictures, looking at these images, that the image we have in our mind of someone impacts how likely we are to be intimate with them. Does that make sense? So that's something to keep in our minds. It's an idea we're going to play around with today as we continue to look in, uh, in Matthew chapter 6 together. And it's going to help us, hopefully, uh, solve a bit of a problem that will, will come up. Maybe it's come up with you over the last few weeks as we've been studying this. So here's where we, here's where we arrive. We're in a moment where Jesus has invited. He's got all these people that have been hanging around him. A lot of followers, a lot of people have been listening to his teaching. He's been healing people. Uh, he's been doing miracles. He's been teaching and preaching. A lot of people, crowds have been around him. And he invites his followers, those who have made some sort of commitment to follow Christ, to, to go up a little further into a mountain so he can teach them a little bit more specifically. The irony is, is that by the time this teaching is over with, the crowds have found them and they're around Jesus hearing this teaching too. But in this moment that we, that we know uh, throughout history is called the Sermon on the Mount, just, uh, just a way for us to refer to it. Um, in this moment, Jesus started out, if you remember, we started with the first message and a few after that understanding that Jesus wanted to paint a picture of the kind of life 
that he wanted to create in his followers. Uh, he wanted his followers to look a certain way, to be a certain kind of people, and he wanted to create in them a certain kind of life. We are his masterpiece is what we've called it. We are his artwork. And the Sermon on the Mount describes what kind of artwork God wants to create in us. And then we discovered as we stepped a little bit further into it and got into the Beatitudes that really at the, at the root, at the source of all of, this, uh, of all of these questions about who does God want to make us is our happiness, is our joy. God wants to make you happy. God wants you to have joy in your life. And we begin to understand that that joy and that happiness is found, its root is found in following Jesus and being with Jesus and being in relationship with Jesus. And then, uh, Will has walked us through over the last few weeks what it looks like once we begin to live in a relationship with Jesus and find our joy in Him, how that begins to flesh itself out in what we call second-mile love and second-mile faith, where we go, go beyond the commanded part of love, the legal part of love, the first mile. Got to do it because, well, that's my wife. I got to do this. Got to do A, B, and C for my wife. Or I got to do it because that's my neighbor. I'm supposed to treat my neighbor a certain way into the second mile kind of love where we're going above and beyond the expectations that someone would have us, above and beyond the requirements of the law, not doing the least we can do for someone, but doing the most we can do for someone. That's the kind of love that God wants to create in the hearts of those who follow Him. Now, I don't know about you, but as we have went through this, this series so far, that sounds pretty desirable to me. I mean, first of all, the infinite, eternal God of the universe who created all the galaxies and the expansive natures of everything that we see in the stars and in the sky and in nature down to the intricate details of DNA. That God, first of all, wants us to have joy and happiness. And second of all, He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to be your friend. More than Michael Jordan wanting to be your friend, Right? More than the president wanting to be your friend. More than the most famous person in all of history, other than Jesus, uh, being wanting to be your friend. God wants to be your friend. No matter where you come in here, whatever mindset you have as you walk in these doors, even if that's theoretically possible, that is an amazing idea. And then to think about the fact that God wants to change me. God wants to transform my heart because I, I got a lot of junk in my heart. I like a lot of things I shouldn't like. I do a lot of things I shouldn't do. I hunger for things that I shouldn't be hungry for. And yet God wants to transform me to have a, a friendship with Him and then the love and that second mile kind of love. That's beyond my concept of human possibility. So we have a problem, a little bit of a conundrum. Where do we get, how do we get ourselves in the position so Jesus can change us? And we said it happens through relationship with Him, but that's a little bit of a loaded church idea, right? I mean, churchy terms. Have a relationship with God. I mean, if you've been in church more than 30 seconds, you've heard somebody say that, right? Have a relationship with Jesus. I mean, I said that in Sunday school in first grade. But what does that mean? I'm not going to answer. We're not going to answer. Jesus didn't even answer all of that in this chapter of Scripture that we're going to look at today. But he did begin to answer it and begin to help us understand what it looks like. So let's dig in a little bit. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. I will say this is one of, those, one of those messages too. If you actually have, and I'm an iPhone Bible user guy, okay? I use my iPhone Bible all the time. It's what I normally use. This isn't judgment for those of you with your iPhones out. I see that. I hate it when pastors do this to me. Uh, but this is just one of those moments. If you happen to have a Bible, it would be awesome to pull it out. If not, no worries. Because I'm going to recommend you do a little drawing in your Bible. Uh, this is going to be a little bit like uh, um, straight up VBS, a little craft work uh, in, your, in your Bible. So we're going to look at some few things we're going to 
going to dig into the text together. Uh, chapter 6 is what we're going to start. And what we're seeing in chapter 6, we're just going to walk through some of the ideas about the text and what the Scripture says. And we'll pull out a pretty important idea, what I think is a very important idea about what it means to be in friendship with God. So in chapter 6, we see the beginning of a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at it in verse 1. Uh, for those of you who have your Bibles open to uh, chapter 6, verse 1, if I can get there myself, it says, Be careful, beware, not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by God. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father. So we get this idea that there's some people who are practicing their good works and their righteousness. They're doing it in front of others, and the purpose behind it is self-praise. Self hey, everybody, look at me. I'm pretty daggum awesome. So praise me. Worship me. Think I'm cool. Say, man, that Lance sure is spiritual. Man, he sure does love Jesus. Did you see how humble he is? I'm guilty of this. Uh, I find more than I'm not guilty of it. This is to be put in contrast to something that happened in chapter 5. You can turn there if you don't mind. Maybe in some sort of way mark it if, if you can. Um, but it's in verse, chapter 5, verse 16. It's the, kind of the beginning of the first section at the end of the introduction. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works. And let's pause there and ask the obvious question, huh? Well, you just read a verse that said, Jesus said, don't worry about what other people see, right? You're not supposed to do righteousness for other people. You're not supposed to be good for other people's sake. So what's Jesus saying? Is he confused? Well, he does say at the end of this verse, and give glory to your Father in heaven. So the big difference between the two is simple, right? One is doing, doing their life, living their life for the sake of God, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of Jesus. The other one's doing it for the sake of the praise of men. Both of them are doing good works. Both of them are living righteously. But one is doing it for the sake of Jesus. One is doing it for the sake of themselves. I just want to give you that as a framework to think about how you live your life every single week. As you're at work, is it for the sake of you? Or is it for the sake of Jesus? When you get up in the morning... Pour your bowl of cereal and you start to engage your family for you or for Jesus. You're here this morning to attend a worship service for you or for Jesus. Jesus calls his followers up on this mountain and the first thing that he wants them to understand in this section of the message is how important it is for us to live our lives for the sake of Jesus and not for the sake of ourselves. This begins the second, so chapter 6, verse 1, begins the second section of the Sermon on the Mount. I do want you just to see briefly verse number 12. I'm sorry, verse number 15, where he begins the third section, because I want to I just for you to see what we're looking at today. Verse 15 of chapter 7. We're all over the place a little bit. Sorry, chapter 7, verse 15. You can follow if you want to. You can mark if you want to. You can listen if you want to. But chapter 7, verse 15 starts the third section where he says that same phrase. In the Greek, it's the same thing where we read in verse six, chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful. He says it again. Be careful or beware of false prophets. So he's getting into the third section. I just want to point that out because here we have Jesus. Remember, remember how he started this message? It was with the Beatitudes. And we said that was a what? Do anybody remember? It's a poem. So that was a poem. So we have Jesus, three points in a poem. Anybody? So for those of you guys who grew up in church and heard a few hundred sermons with three points in a poem, Jesus did it first. Just want to say that and throw that out there. We're going to dig into uh, chapter 6 today a little bit more detail because we want to understand how Jesus centers this whole message around a very important idea. When, a, when an author would write or when a speaker would speak, what you put in the middle in this era was the most important part. 
It's a way to provide emphasis. So we want to look at this middle section, this middle point, and we want to understand what is it that Jesus emphasizes. And what he emphasizes begin to help us answer that question of, okay, really good idea you just talked about. This infinite God up here, he's perfect, he's full of love, awesome, sounds really cool in theory. You changing my heart, God changing my heart to where I love the second my love. Okay, that's awesome, but you know, I don't know if that's ever possible. I'm sure it would be cool to see the whole world live that way. Second, my love, and, and, and by the way, remember Will taught us it was both those inside our circle and outside of our circle we're supposed to live in second, my love for. Not only those outside of our circle, but those way outside of our circle, as far out as you can imagine someone being, and contrary to you, live in second, my love to that person and with that person. That sounds like a good idea. If you can't get in your head that that sounds like a good idea for you, which I, I think most of us can, at least get in your idea that's a pretty good idea for everybody else, right? That radical second mile love. How in the world do we get there? Well, chapter 6 is going to help us answer that question. I do want to show you a few things about chapter 6. The first thing I want to show you is that there's the way it's broken down, the way it's put together. Jesus is very intentional in how we read this. So everything I'm about to show you, by the way, would be available to you in English. I think I'm going to point out one Greek word that's important to know what it means. But everything I'm about to point out to you is available to you if you read your Bible in English. It just takes reading it carefully. And that's where I would challenge you a little bit as you begin to think about how you read your Bible and study your Bible. You study your Bible. It doesn't take a, a master's degree in Greek and Hebrew. It doesn't take years of theological training. It just takes intentionality and reading your Bible carefully, listening to the Spirit speak. The Spirit of God spoke to us in Scripture. God Himself encoded a message for us in Scripture. So just read it carefully. And we're going to do that together today to understand what His message is for us. Look in verse number 2, and it says... Whenever you give to the poor. So whenever you give. Notice that. And then get down to number, verse number 5. Whenever you pray. They have a lot of material on prayer, including the Lord's Prayer. And then verse number 16. Whenever you fast. So when you give, when you pray, and when you... Alright, so that's the first section in this chapter. And then he starts giving us a few commands. So he stops that, con that content for a minute or transitions away from it. starts giving us commands. Look at verse number 19. It says, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth. So don't collect. And then he goes down to verse 25 and he says, don't worry. He actually says, don't worry three times. Hmm, I wonder why he would say, don't worry three times. Hmm, I wonder if he might be trying to tell us something there. And then he gets down to chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge. And then chapter 7, verse 6. Do not give. So we have four commands. What's the first one? Let's do it together. Don't collect. Number two, don't, don't worry. How many times does he say that? Three times. So it's the same command three times. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, don't, don't judge. Awesome. And then the last one is don't give. Uh, interesting. He starts out the section by talking about giving. And now he's going to come back and use the same word again. Don't give your pearls to swine. That's the, that's the second part of this, of this chapter. So the first part's when you do this, don't do it like the hypocrites. When you do that, don't do it like the hypocrites. When you, when you fast, don't look at the hypocrites. And then he goes into the, sections, the second section. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Four or five, depending on how you look at it, commands. And then he ends up with a chapter, kind of summarizing it, helping us understand what this whole chapter is about in, in chapter 7, verse 7. And he says this, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who also receives, uh, for everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. 
What man among you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And that's how Jesus, in this section where he's answering this question about how do we get to this stage, this vision that he's painted for us, how do we become that masterpiece? He builds towards a crescendo of the end of this section in chapter 7, verse 7, where he says, Hey guys, it's all about how we, how we might simplify and summarize chapter 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 7 through 11. It's all about what? Prayer. Now that's still a churchy word, I get it. So we are going to unwrap it a little bit. Is that okay? Looking for good body language. All right, good deal. All right, good. So we're going to wrap it a little bit. I want to show you a thread that Jesus connects through this entire section. So just to summarize what we said so far, chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse, verse 13, really, is one big section. Uh, 13 uh, I won't get into that now. We'll get into that later as we keep studying this text. But it's one big section. He, he built it to the crescendo of about prayer. Now, now think about what we've seen so far. What, what was the center part of the first section? What was it about? I know we're asking you to think, and it's Sunday morning, and it's early, and you probably just woke up. But what was the center idea of the first little section, verses 1 through 16? What's that? Hypocrisy. It's the center idea. What was the center? Uh, since you're one of the, the pastors here, I can say, no, that's not right, Will. Because I can say that to you. <laughs> the rest of you will be like, oh, that's a good idea. Hmm, let's look at another. So what was the center? So, so remember, he said, whenever you, whenever you fast, and then whenever you give. And what was the one he said in the middle? Pray. pray. That's right. So whenever you pray is the thing in the middle. And what do we say about the thing in the middle? It's what's emphasized, Right. He does the exact same thing, um, if you're paying attention, in the next section where he says, don't worry, I'm um, sorry, don't collect, don't worry, which he says three times, and then don't judge and don't give. He puts in the middle, um, and even emphasizes it with don't worry, this idea of not only not worrying, but what's the response to worrying? How do we answer worry? Well, look what it says, or just listen to me if you don't want to look. Um, don't worry, but instead do what? Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek. It's the same word that he's going to use at the end of this chapter when he says, Ask and you will find. Seek and the door will be opened to you. Or seek and, and you will find. Ask and it will be given to you. And search and seek and, it will, and you will find it. It's the same word. So every single part of this text, the entire middle portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the most important sermon in all of history, Jesus' example model message, the middle point of it, is about prayer. Let that sit on you for a second. Let that create in you what it's created in me this week, and that is a challenge to think about what does it really mean to pray? Well, what's that thread? I do want to show you that thread. So to see that thread, we are going to look at, I told you we're going to be a little bit all over the place today. We're going to go back to chapter 6. We're going to look at the first section again in verse 8. Give you time to get there. It says, don't be like them. Don't be like the hypocrites. Because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. And then, in verse 32, He says something similar, almost in a direct quote. Chapter 6, verse 32. For the idolaters eagerly seek these things. And your Heavenly Father knows what you need in Greek, it's a direct quote, the last part and the first part. God knows. 
So follow my thinking for a little bit. God knows what you need. Why in the world would you ask Him? And the answer to that question is a very important question. Because God's not seeking from you information. God is seeking intimacy. God doesn't need information from you. At least the way I understand it, He knows everything. But what He does desire is intimacy. Don't give God your insights. Give God your insides. That is why God says in this middle of this great portion of text on prayer, He says, don't worry about telling God something He doesn't know. He already knows everything. That's not why you're talking to Him. He's not sitting there up at His, at his uh, divine desk. I don't know why I always have a desk in my head when I, when I think about that. Divine desk. You know, God in like this big leather chair. I know that can't be right. But, but uh, He's sitting there and you know, he's, desk, he's like, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what's going on in Todd's life. I really would like to help him out. I just, I just don't know. What does he need? And Todd knocks on the door, opens the door, and he says, Oh, thank goodness, Todd's here. Tell me what you need. I've been wondering for like days what's going on in your life. Tell me, I've got, I got some things I need to write. God doesn't need information from you. He wants intimacy. God doesn't need your insights. He wants your insides. He wants to hear what's going on inside of you. He wants to hear from the deepest part of your being. The purpose is not transference of information. The purpose of prayer is intimacy, getting to know who God is, revealing who you are, and creating space for God to reveal who He is. And then we come back again to chapter 7, to the end, to chapter 7, verse 7. Actually, let's look, just look straight to verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... Same idea, an allusion to the two verses we just read because there's the same words mentioned in it. Jesus is saying, I've been talking to you about God knows. God knows what you need, so just seek Him in intimacy. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So Jesus, in this crescendo, in this moment, says, it's not about sharing information. It's about intimacy. And here's how he defines what that means. He defines it by saying this, that image impacts intimacy. Your image of God, how you define God in your head, in your belief system, impacts how intimate you will be with God. Image impacts intimacy. So I have two granddads. Um, they are both uh, no longer on, on the earth with us. Um, so one of them uh, I call granddad he was my dad's dad and my granddad was a pretty gruff guy uh, I mean he was a hard worker good man and wise man in a lot of ways but he's a pretty rough, pretty rough guy mostly of my granddad I remember a very few things I worked for him a whole lot so I remember him yelling at me because <laughs> you know do that better do that faster work harder um, I, I remember that and I remember um, him yelling at my grandmother I, uh, food's too cold. Where's dinner? Turn the TV up. Turn the TV down. I, I remember. That's the image that I have of what, who I call granddad. My mother's father, I called him Papa. The image I have of my Papa is of him laughing and telling jokes, hugging me, holding me close. 
I don't remember one time in my entire life sitting in my granddad's lap. I have very few memories of my papa where I wasn't sitting in his lap. If both of them walked in the room right now, one after the other, if my granddad walked through the room and I hadn't seen him in forever, I would shake his hand and say, good to see you, granddad. My papa walked through the room. I'd run to him and I'd throw my arms around him and I'd hold him close and I would weep. The picture in my head, the picture in my heart of my granddad impacts intimacy. The picture in my head, the picture in my heart of my papa impacts intimacy. Image impacts intimacy. So how does our image of God start to flesh out and produce intimacy? Notice what Jesus says about how how God wants us to view Him. God God wants us to view Him as a giver. That's how God wants you to look at Him, as a giver. God wants to be known as a giver. You see, there's two different ways to approach God. One of them is, imagine yourself approaching God. Forget the office with the desk this time. I don't think that one works. But you're approaching God, and you've got a cup. And in your cup, you've got something. And you're going to give it to God. You're going to walk up, and you're going to bring it out to God. So one way is, is that you're the giver, and God is the receiver. So in your cup, you've got something really great. For the, for the wine aficionados among us, maybe you've just got a really great quality wine. For the coffee drinkers, you've got an amazing espresso. For those of us from Alabama, you've got some sun drop. Yeah. Or, or the other side, Western North Carolina as well, right? You've got some sun drop. And you're presenting your God, and you're like, oh man, this is going to be good. God's going to love what I've got in my cup. Oh man, he's going to love it. And you bring it to God, and you're like, oh, he will be pleased with me because of what I'm giving him. I will please God because of what is in my cup. I'm the giver, he's the receiver. That's one way to look at approaching God. The other way to look at approaching God is I come to God with my cup. But it's empty. And I have nothing. Nothing to bring. Nothing to give. Nothing pleasing. And God is not pleased by what I bring Him. He is pleased by what He gets to give me. And He gets to fill my cup with with Himself, with His own living water. Those are two different ways of looking at God. And God says, look at me like I'm the giver. Jesus said what? It's more blessed to what? Than to what? Who do you want to be more blessed in your life? You or God? If you want God to be more blessed, you will always put Him in the position of giver. And you will always put yourself in the position of receiver. And what the Sermon on the Mount has taught us us anything is that we have nothing in our cup to bring to God. Our cup is empty. We are spiritually bankrupt. We don't have a good quality wine for God. I drink, I drink wine with Todd every now and then. Everything he gives me, I'm like, oh, this is good. This is delicious. I think he would go get like a $2 bottle from Walmart and bring it to me and be like, oh, this is delicious because I just don't know. I have no idea what I'm drinking. I, I try to be like, hmm, fruity. Yeah, a little fruity. Little, it kind of lands up. Mm. I like how it hits the back of my tongue a little bit. Mm. Little, yeah, I have no idea what I'm talking about. It all tastes like grape juice to me, a little bit, a little bit of something. And I'm sorry, Todd and Rachel, y'all are judging me right now, I know. But I have just no idea. Um, but if you bring a glass of wine to someone who knows what they're drinking, right? 
they can tell every note and they can say, this is really great wine. This is Walmart junk. We have no great wine to bring to our great connoisseur, to our great God. We have nothing to bring. And he knows the difference. Come to God as a giver. Isn't that way dads are, by the way? This passage wants to paint picture, the, this passage paints a picture of God as a giver, as a dad, a gracious dad. Isn't that way dads are? I don't know about you and my family. I want to be the guy who fixes stuff. I want to be the guy who takes care of things. I can remember uh, walking in and seeing my dad with like his like cut off muscle shirt. Uh, forgive me, we call those wife beaters in our world. I know that's not politically correct, but that is what we call them in the safety of our house. Apologize uh, if that offends you, but it's what we call them. And man, my dad had big muscles, and I say, "Dad, you've got such big muscles." The girls haven't said that to me yet. <laughs> God wants us to look at him and say, Dad, you've got such big muscles. Dad, my, I'm broken. Can you fix this? Dad, I'm hurting. Can you heal this? Dad, can you help me? Dad, can you give to me? God says, that's what you need to think of. That's the image you need to have of me as the giver, as your dad who fixes everything, who wants to give who wants to be known as the God who answers our prayers. Think about how this impacts how you pray. This will change the way you pray. Martin Luther says this, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Prayer is laying hold of God's willingness. You ever thought about prayer as, man, I'm going to make sure I do it right. Maybe I should be on my knees. Maybe I should have my hands lifted up. If I don't do it right, He's not going to do what I need Him to do. Make sure I say it right. Oh, I remember there's some sort of acrostic I think I'm supposed to use. Like, like maybe uh, j- 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 laughing, happy, joy. Joy is it. Okay, it's Jesus, others, and you. I've mean, got to get it right. If I don't get it right, God's, God's going to be like, ha, 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 you didn't get it right. God is a father. He's a dad. He wants to fix your brokenness. He wants to provide for you. He wants to give to you. He wants to restore you. You are broken. We are broken. And God doesn't sit up in heaven going, no, I don't want to do that. He said, please come to me. I want to be known as the God who gives, as the God who answers prayer. Think about how that will change how you pray. Look at verse, we've looked at it a few times, but look at verse 7 again. Just keep asking. It's a present tense Greek verb, which we've said a thousand times around here. It means just keep on doing it. Don't stop. Literally that word asking, that's all we're going to focus in on when it comes to a word. Literally that word asking means... To, to urge, to beg. Are there are a lot of different Greek words uh, Jesus could have chosen, um, or Matthew, if he translated Jesus' sermon, uh, could have chosen to reflect what Jesus was saying here. He could have said just simply make a request or ask. This verse, this word means to beg, to urgency, deep hunger and desire. Uh, that's what it speaks to. I like a, uh, there's a quote that I found from a Francois Fénillon, and I said that with confidence because I don't really know how to say it. It's a French mystic from the 1600s. He talks about how our, our deepest hungers and our deepest desires are how the Spirit of God communicates to us. When you're a believer, the Bible says you have the mind of Christ. That the Spirit of God has been sent into your heart crying out, Abba, Father. And look what Francois says. The true prayer is that of the heart. And the heart prays only for what it desires. To pray then is to desire. And then he says later, The Spirit prays 
within us for those very things which the Spirit Himself wills to give us. To me, the most amazing thought in the world as we look at this text and we begin to understand what it's saying is that it's our deepest urges in Christ in our spirit. That's where we discover the Spirit of God praying in us, yearning in us. Uh, Peter says something, some, something similar to this. I think it's uh, verse chapter 5, verse 14. I believe we have it. Do we have it up here? Let's see. Go down one more. Awesome. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 7, just a couple of passages we're going to read together. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And then the next one that we see from Paul, we see a few different ones from Paul. Uh, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Both of these passages paint this picture of our hearts that are yearning and broken and hurting for things. I like how J.I. Packer says it. He says, J.I. Packer comes right out. This is, this is from a book on prayer by Tim Keller, quoting and referring to something J.I. Packer says about prayer. The best book I've read in five years, a book by Tim Keller on prayer. J.I. Packer, and he quotes J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer comes right out and calls this kind of petition complaining. He admits that no one likes people who whine and complain, and goodness knows I don't. But he points out that in the Bible, when bad things happen to good people, they complain with great freedom and at a considerable length to God. And Scripture does not seem to regard these complaining prayers as anything other than wisdom. He goes on to note that the plaintive question to God, how long, is almost 20 times in the prayers of the Psalms an almost technical sign of this kind of complaining prayer. And what does this teach us? That as our hearts yearn and ache for things, it is the Spirit of God building in us the prayers of God. The next passage that we see in 826 says this. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, as we should. So how do we know what to pray? The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit of God yearning, urging, aching inside of us for the things of God. He says something different, something relative to this in the next passage of Scripture in Galatians. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God, God Himself in your heart, aching, desiring, yearning for the things of God in your life. How do we pray in the Spirit? We pray in the Spirit by joining the song of the Spirit of God, singing out of our hearts in harmony. The most powerful moment I can imagine is when we join the Spirit's prayer deep in our hearts and pray that prayer to God. God inside of us, praying through us to God. That's what it means to pray. That's how understanding who God is and how God begins to shift our prayer thoughts and our prayer ideas into this deeper idea of praying with the Spirit by praying with the deep desires and urges and hungers of our heart gets fleshed out and reflected in a life of prayer. So we started in a place, and I want us to end there. Got a few pictures, and if you'll just click it ahead, and we'll just think for a second. We don't know what God looks like, right? Whether we have a desk picture or what. We don't know what God looks like. But we know He's smiling. And He's looking at you. He's looking at me. And He's waiting for us to approach Him. He's waiting for us to come to Him and say, Daddy, here I am. It's broken. Fix it.
And He receives our request, every one of them, with a smile. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to today's episode. To learn more about our church or hear other messages, please visit us at www.restorationchurch.us or like our Facebook page at RestorationDCH.